A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast in partnership with the Grierson Trust. This is a brand new podcast that asks nonfiction filmmakers about the documentaries that have had a lasting impact on their lives and careers. I'm your host, June Jennings. I'm a writer and journalist based in New York and currently serve as the Engagement and Partnerships Manager for Field of Vision, an award-winning filmmaker-driven documentary unit. Every week, I'll ask a new filmmaker or filmmaking team about three documentaries connected by a single theme that have made a meaningful impression on their work and life. This week, I'm joined by the incredibly talented Kirsten Johnson. Kirsten has worked as the principal cinematographer on over 40 feature-length documentaries, has been credited on countless others, including Pray the Devil Back to Hell, Fahrenheit 9-11, This Film is Not Yet Rated, and Citizen Four. In 2016, Kirsten broke out as a director with the film Camera Person, which was shortlisted for an Academy Award and won the Sheffield DocFest Grand Jury Prize. The film was subsequently released by the Criterion Collection, who called it a moving glimpse into one filmmaker's personal journey and a thoughtful examination of what it means to train a camera on the world. This year, Kirsten returned with a very personal film titled Dick Johnson is Dead, which is currently available on Netflix. Blending fact and fiction, the film examines Kirsten's own relationship with her father, who has been diagnosed with dementia, and explores how film can help us all grapple with life's profundity. Our interview was every bit as cerebral and spiritual as I might have expected after watching Kirsten's films. Let's check it out. It's so great to have you here on the Doc Exchange today, Kirsten. Thank you so much for being here. A joy, a joy to be here. And so before we dive into your documentary picks, Can you describe your path to documentary filmmaking? How did you arrive at this particular moment and make a film like Dick Johnson instead? Ooh, you know, like everybody, I have a long and winding path. But I would say Dick Johnson is Dead totally springs from Camera Person, which is the film I made in 2016, because Camera Person was kind of an act of desperation in a certain way. I really needed to contend with the questions that had accumulated for me after having shot documentaries for many people over the course of a couple of decades. And I didn't know when I was making it if it would be understandable to anyone else. But like I say, I was so desperate in a way to grapple with these things that I was just like, I got to do it. I got to put that question in. I got to put that question in. I'm putting that piece of footage in. And when it came out, people responded to it, which was a total shock because it wasn't that I like, I don't know. I mean, yes, I set out to push the form and play with the form, but that was not the primary drive. It was more like, let me look at this footage and try to understand what it means to me. But it was really exhilarating. 
how able the audience was to be with me. And I knew how much was missing from the film. Like it's just, it's full of all these fragments and I didn't explain anything. There's no voiceover. So when that happened, I just like had this really huge sense of exhilaration and freedom. And also people were incredibly warm to the film and it sort of made me feel like, all right, I made something that people like. I can really fail now. It's okay if I make something that people really don't like, but like, I want to experience that again. Like having a film teach me how to make it and then let's see what it is and let's see what happens, but not with like, I must know what it's going to be. It's like the, the total opposite. Like, I don't want to know what this movie is going to be. And that's what's happened. <laughs> and given that so much of your work has been as a cinematographer, at what point did you start to think about directing as something you wanted to pursue or did it just happen more organically? I thought about directing from the very beginning and it's like, common, like most people say like, oh, camera person is your first film. But in fact, as a director, but it is not at all. And not very many people know, but after I got out of film school, I went to the French National Film School in Paris and studied cinematography. You know, I made a short, short film, but then I made a feature like film that was a science fiction movie about a pandemic and it's a total train wreck of a film. It never really worked. The Part of the acting is terrible. Part of the acting is great. But like when I look back at it now, I'm just, you know, and I was inspired by the AIDS epidemic and I had read Laurie Garrett's book, The Coming Plague. And, you know, it was the time of the first Ebola outbreak. So, of course, I was thinking about all of those things, but it's just remarkable to me now, like to look back. And that was what I was trying to do in, I think it was 1995, right? But I made that film and then I also, you know, made a couple of films about the criminal justice system and about the racism in mass incarceration. So I made a film called Innocent Until Proven Guilty and Deadline with Katie Chevigny. So I have made and attempted to make many films as a director, but I do understand why people see Camera Person as the first film, because I think it's the first film in which I fully owned the film and owned the language of the film. That makes a lot of sense. And I'd love to know what kinds of stories generally interest you as a filmmaker. At what point does an idea become something more, like a tangible project that you're fleshing out and pursuing? When does that happen? Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting, like looking back on it now, there's so many things I'm interested in in this world, but I think it's like, what feels urgent for me? You know, and I would say early on in my career, it felt really urgent, the problem of mass incarceration in the country, and it still feels urgent to me. So then you have to say like, okay, at certain moments in your life, you are able to focus your attention on one thing. And I can tell you, I was so torn with Dick Johnson because, you know, there had already been the inauguration of a new president in 2016, and the sort of social political urgency of the moment was clear to all of us. And yet I became overwhelmed by the fact that like, this is it. This is the only dad I've got. And he's about to disappear in front of me. And I was really torn <laughs> because I felt like I should be doing something else. But a lot of my career in life, I've been torn by what I should do because I feel there's so much that is urgent in this world. And so that strange triage between should and must internally can be a really difficult battle. And I will not say it is ever easy, but at, at least, you know, 
I think these questions of like should, must, need, all of those questions are there. But then I also think asking oneself the question of like, what is, what is most terrifying for me to do? It gives you a clue to like where the deep need is. And so thinking about the theme that unites today's documentary picks, they all relate to the process of filmmaking and how that process might help us make sense of things that are terrifying, like life and death through documenting them. I'm wondering if you could talk about why that particular theme interests you. So, I mean, I just think, one, our time on this life, on this planet is limited. We don't know how limited it is. These tools have been invented by people, cameras, microphones, that give us the capacity to imagine, to observe, to search, and in some ways to time travel. So, you know, one of the things that I have learned through decades of filming is that a moment exists, like this moment you and I are here right now. I can see a little red flashing light in the corner. And our conversation is changed because that red light is there. Meaning we have a sense of urgency. We know we have a limited amount of time. And we're also performing not on the realm of being false selves, but like we're aspiring to each other, right? Like you've got questions for me. I'm aspiring to answer you in the strongest, sharpest, most interesting way possible. And so I think of the camera or the microphone as this catalytic device. Like it makes something happen and it makes something happen between you and me. What the two of us don't know is what's the future. And we don't know what's going to come out of our mouths. Then it will be recorded, heard by other people, and it may change our destiny. We may say one thing that changes the way our lives go. And you think like, that's a crazy thing to say. But when you look at Jaffer Panani's film, this is not a film. Here's a person who has been banned by his government from making movies under threat of going to prison, cannot travel in his country. And he's using a cell phone, recording in his home. And it's sort of the stakes are that high. Like he could go to prison depending on what he says or what he films. And in his case, it's real. It's not a metaphor. But in our case, it is also real. Like the internet exists. If we said one thing that was deeply controversial in this conversation, it would go out into the world and you are, I might be explaining it for the rest of our lives. We've seen people reduced to the one sentence or the one act that they did that takes them forward into the future forever speaking of that moment in the past. So your first pick for today is Ziga Vertov's Man with the Movie Camera, the experimental silent documentary that gives us an insight into life in Soviet Moscow. And so why, as someone who lives in the U.S. in the 21st century, does this film resonate with you? Like you said, all of these films really are actively wondering, what does a camera do in the world? And what do we do with it? Which is just my primary like starting place. And so I came into cinema hoping to be a director when I was trying to get into the French National Film School. Someone said, like, you do not stand a chance. You'll never get in. And I was like, well, can I try? They're like, you can try. But then someone said to me, listen, this school is like highly competitive. 
And they will not want an American in the directing department. What you've got to do is go into one of the technical departments. And I've always been a person of images, but I hadn't done anything with a camera before. But that seemed like more than editing, more than sound, more than producing. I was like, that's my lane. And then somehow I I got through, I got in, I sort of got in the back door, right? I remember like this incredible 35 millimeter gorgeous camera. And it just sort of dawned on me like, oh, this is the center of movie making. This is where it happens. And they've let me in. They're letting me touch this thing. And once I touch it and hold it and look through it, I'm at the center of the process. I think the way in which I felt marginalized and I felt like I couldn't have access to the power and then I like snuck in and then suddenly I was like, this is the power of cinema right here. It like, it was this electric thing around like, oh, the person and the camera we are the ones who make the movies. From then on, I was just like, okay, who's got the camera? Who's holding the camera? And the Ziga Veritov, I discovered in film school and the sort of frenzy of it, the energy of it, the being out in the world, you can go anywhere, you can climb on anything, you know, and it's made in 1929. So there's all this like excitement about movement sort of coming out of a time when people walked or in carts pulled by horses, suddenly it's like trains and cars and like thrill of you can move and the camera can move with you. And all of that was one part of it. But I think the key moment in it for me then, and I think it really relates to Dick Johnson instead, is this moment where you see a photo of an old woman and then it's cut against the moving image of the woman. And it's like this woman comes to life. And the sort of difference between photography and motion picture filming is just night and day, life and death. And so this film is known and widely regarded for introducing a lot of cinematic effects that are now part of the language of filmmaking, like the dissolve, split screens, and slow motion. You also play with effects like slow motion and other techniques in Dick Johnson is Dead. Did you see Man with a Movie Camera as a film that changed the way you thought about documentaries and what was possible in your own filmmaking process? Absolutely. Because I feel like Man with a Movie Camera is play. Like you have this experience of play, of just permission, play. I can go anywhere. I can put myself in the movie. And it's got music and drive. It's sort of alive in this way that makes it outside of time. Like it's such a document, like you see the world of 1929, like there's so much information about the world that's just taken for granted. But what you're feeling is this sort of drive and possibility of this person. And even though like, as you say, there's sort of all these effects are created and invented in it, it doesn't feel like those are being done to show off or to create some cool style. It's more like, what can we do? What can we do? It's got this exuberance about it that I find very compelling as a human. So I return to the film a lot, but I don't like go to a movie and look at it and think about how that might affect my own movies. It's more like I want the experience of it again, because I know I'll experience it in a new way. And I'll remember myself who saw it for the first time. And so given that it was a film that was made almost 100 years ago now, why do you think it endures as a piece of art? I think because it is about 
his need. It's just a, it's a document. It's evidence of a person living. And one of the things that cinema does for us is it pushes us to aspire. And, you know, I said that earlier, like, I'm aspiring to you, you're aspiring to me. We're trying to like elevate the conversation. What does that mean? It means that we value each other and that we value the people who are listening because like, there's not enough time in this life. None of us have enough time. So it's like, we must use our time well and things matter. There's an urgency to things. So like that sort of idea of wasting time. I love to do nothing and to not know what's coming and to be relaxed and to like spread out into time. But I think any moment that you think about the social injustice of this world or the suffering of other people or the ways in which brave people have made things shift, you're like, I got to get on it. (laughs) I got to do something with my time. I got to like battle for something. I've got to rage against some machines, right? And so speaking of raging against the machine, I love to move on to your second pick, which is Jafar Panahi's This Is Not A Film, which is this deeply political home movie made in Iran in 2010 after the filmmaker was put on house arrest by the Iranian government and banned from filmmaking. Why is this film significant to you? I just remember being like electrified by that film, being sobered by his reality, being so moved that he could expose his vulnerability. And so much of that film is about what he can't do. So, you know, he'll do these amazing things like, you know, he was making a film and then got stopped by the government. They took the rushes of his film and then he's trapped in his house. He's under house arrest and he does things like, you know, sort of tape out on the floor, the dimensions of the apartment that was in the movie he was going to make. And he's got the script and he's reading it. And then he interrupts himself and says, well, if you could tell a movie, why make a movie? So he's sort of constantly confronting the impotency and the inadequacy that one feels when trying to make something. And that's the way I feel all the time when I'm filming like I'm missing the moment, I'm failing. Why didn't I think of doing this before the light was going? And so that film is so exposed. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What I love about it is it's a documentary in its most immediate or playful form, like we were discussing earlier. It's more a video diary or essay than a traditional film. Do you find documentaries with that homemade or informal quality compelling, more compelling, and if so, why? I've like wonder all my career long, what can fiction films do that documentaries cannot? Why have we traditionally valued documentaries less? And when I say value, some of it has to do with money and capitalism. The idea of a fiction film that you can imagine something and then bring it into being means that you can potentially contain it and know what it will cost. Whereas with a documentary, part of the starting place is you don't know what's going to happen. It's very difficult to contain. And certainly, you know, that's why we have many documentaries where the container is known. Like, oh, let's do a Spelling Bee movie because Spelling Bee is going to end. You know when it will end. But so many documentaries that we value, there's no end in sight, right? So documentaries have a relationship to time that can be very costly. It's not an efficient relationship to time, right? But I think part of why people don't value documentaries, and I I do think that's totally shifting right now in the world that we're in, but why people have traditionally not valued documentaries is that documentaries really confront the audience with their impotency. Meaning if you watch a film in which people are living under death threats and you leave the theater and you are affected by it emotionally, on some level, mustn't you do something? Mustn't you respond? Whereas if you watch a fiction film, even if it's based on a true story, you are comforted by the fact that actors are in these life or death situations and they get to leave those life or death situations. With a documentary, you know someone is still out there living in that. And if they are not still alive, is their immediate family or their children who have been left bereft and you are doing nothing on their behalf. So I think documentaries pose these sort of moral questions to us, these ethical questions, and they remind us of what we can't do for the world. I think I chose these films because you see people grappling with the potential of what you can do with cinema. You see people playing, experimenting. And I think with This Is Not a Film, it is such a brilliant, such a brilliant film, but it is an act of desperation. He didn't want to expose himself in that way. He didn't want to make a movie in his own home, but he does not want to let the Iranian government win. They're not going to control his life. They're not going to limit his imagination. And I think for me, it's a template, right? Of we are all caught 
by structures into positions we do not wish to be in. That maybe we may be born into a country that does not recognize us or value us as a person. And we are going to fight against that. How? With what tools? How will we get through to others? How can we as an individual fight these systems that seek to crush us? And so it's not just him there. It is any citizen in any country in the world or any one of us as a citizen of the world. There are structures so much bigger than us that cinema can somehow, in that same way I was talking, like sneak in, sneak in and show power to itself, show its horror to itself. And given that it's a film from the perspective of a filmmaker who has been placed under house arrest and is facing death threats from their government, it's potentially a pretty resonant film for this particular moment, particularly the part about him being under house arrest, as so many of us have been effectively locked down in our homes for months. Has lockdown impacted your filmmaking or creative process at all? How have you been compelled to look at your surroundings or your usual way of doing things in a new way? Yeah, you know, it's, isn't it amazing? I literally didn't even think of, like, I chose a film about house arrest. <laughs> and that's what I love about the unconscious and the ways that ideas connect. It's like, I was watching, I was like, oh my God, like, of course I chose this movie. How perfect. But I didn't think of it ahead of time. But, you know, it's like, wow, does he search? Does he like come up with new ideas? Does he time travel? And absolutely this time has profoundly impacted me. One of the things that those of us who have been or are caregivers with, for people with dementia experience is anticipatory grief. You're afraid of losing what you might lose, you're thinking about what you've already lost. You've got this person who you love, who is themselves and not themselves. You think like, is this as bad as it's going to get? And then you're like, no, I know it's going to get worse. And, you know, look at this moment in the pandemic that we're in. When it began in March and April, I was riveted to the news, tracking the numbers every day, so aware of how the surge was happening, particularly in New York City, but all around the world. I traveled to Madrid at the beginning of the pandemic. So I was like, wow, I just made it out of Spain and then made it back to New York and like sort of aware of all these hotspots. I have a lot of Chinese friends who are trying to make films in Wuhan. It was, it all felt like incredibly urgent And then now look at us. We're in a moment where the cases are higher per day than they were in April. I'm no longer looking at the numbers, at least not on a day-to-day. Like I would like check in the morning, check at night, right? So we have shifted and we're sort of like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. But if you were an emergency room doctor right now, you're like, it's not okay. It's worse. And so like the shifting position that one has to one's own experience I find so remarkable within this moment and the way in which one still has to do one's own work. So I'm here in a house. We've chosen to be in a home. I've changed homes. I'm now in the countryside. I'm thinking about being a parent. I'm thinking about my mother and how she parented. And I find myself in this present moment in time, but very much in my own imagination, which is all of us, wherever we are, whether we stayed in the apartment we started in with the pandemic or we moved somewhere else, we're thinking about 
our environment. We're thinking about the people who we are with, if we are with anyone, but we're also thinking about the past. We're thinking about people who are dead. I'm thinking about my mother all the time. We're thinking about maybe the future, but I think not so much because it's just so unknowable that we're sort of putting that aside. And I'm just like being blown away how much I'm thinking about my own childhood and who I was and who I am now. You mentioned that you were thinking about your mother and being a parent yourself. So why don't we move on to your final pick, which is Chantal Ackerman's No Home Movie. So this film is an unbearably poignant portrait of the director's mother, Natalia Ackerman, a survivor of Auschwitz, in the final few months of her life. Why did you select this film for us to talk about today? Well, I I chose it because I was afraid of it. (laughs) Chantal Ackerman's work is always about duration and the experience of watching a film that moves at a slower pace than one is comfortable with at least me, and that durational sort of being trapped in her movies. I was experiencing it as like, I'm trapped in a Chantal Ackerman movie. And it puts me into this, like, do I want to be here? Can I leave? And then I say one, but I like break out of these moments. So, you know, in the opening of this film, she has an almost five minute long shot of a tree and the wind is just like bashing against it. And the tree is just you know, half of the tree, all the leaves have been worn off it, the needles have been worn off of it. And it's got like a few fresh green things, but it's mostly like old and weathered and hanging on. And you experience that shot. You're like, the wind is exhausting. And you start to think about like, how does that tree deal with this? How does it put up with this? How could it stand being here? But it's like, the tree has no choice. Like, That's where it grew and it's really windy there. And then the shot finally ends and you're suddenly in this sunlit park and it's quiet. And the relief you feel is extraordinary. And then all of a sudden you're bored. (laughs) And that's the kind of real time experience one has watching Chantal Ackerman's film. In this case, she's looking at her mother and her relationship with her mother. Her mother is a survivor of Auschwitz. Her mother is aging and ages considerably in the film. You see her really drop down, really go from someone who can talk and laugh and be darling to someone who can barely eat or breathe. And then suddenly she's gone and the house is empty. And it mostly all takes place in her mother's apartment or images of Chantal looking at the world out in the world, but just like, you know, a tracking shot or looking into the ocean. Watching it was as painful as I expected it to be on many levels. And I just was in complete admiration of the human bravery. It's so exposed. It is so what Dick Johnson is dead is not in some ways because it just allows us to share the pain of watching the very like banal and slow loss of capacity that humans often experience at the end of their lives. And so in the film, Ackerman is documenting her mother, as you mentioned, which is how it resembles your film in that you're documenting your dad. Did the process of making Dick Johnson is Dead change your relationship at all? I knew that he was 
like someone who was game and that he loves me. I think like on a certain level, like it proved it a million times over that my father would do anything for me, (laughs) that he would sort of like throw off the reputation of his whole, like my dad is like this person of amazing integrity who was a psychiatrist for 60 years who really cared about who he was in the world. And then he was like, oh, take my life and do anything you want with it. I'm like, wow, (laughs) that's amazing. And then the other thing is like, you know, dementia has made loving him hard and loving him was always easy. And that like, you know, I'm like, it's emotional because it's just like, I can't believe how hard this is. And it kind of, I mean, I feel like this is what it is. Like human relationships, like they are filled with all things. It may take 55 years of easiness to then hit the last patch of so hard that that balances out all of the easiness. Like, I feel like the complexity of things is such that you always have all of it. Some people you have to like, the struggle is in the moment and, and it's like, ah, back and forth. This one is like 55 years of easy and now like so hard, it's going to give me a heart attack. But that's what it is to love another person. You get all of it. Definitely. And thank you for that answer and your honesty. And if it's okay, I just want to ask one final question about No Home Movie, which is preoccupied with depicting the everyday and ordinary routines of people and the people we love. As someone who has shot footage around the world, the vastest of which can be seen in your film camera person, what was the experience of shooting closer to home like for you? Did it change your process or approach at all while making Dick Donton is dead? You know, when you fly somewhere, go somewhere where you're only going to be for a limited amount of time, you know, I'm going to be in Darfur for five months. I'm going to be in Liberia for three weeks. I'm going to be in Calcutta for four days. You have this pressure on you to say, I've got to, you know, follow this story as much as I can. I have to create this world. You know, like you have this sort of incredible pressure to film all the time. And when you're filming close to home, because you know the world, you forget that you have to depict it for others. Because if you go to Kolkata for a day, you're discovering it. And you're like, oh my God, I want to film everything. I want to film everything. That's so different from me looking at the carpet in my father's den I know that carpet. I've sat on it. I know what it feels like. I don't need to describe it to anyone. You know, it's taken for granted. It's a given. And I filmed very sparingly in Dick Johnson is Dead. I only filmed when I knew something must happen. So when we were leaving our house for the last time, I knew I had to have a camera there. I knew something would happen. I didn't know what. I imagined we would get emotional. We did. But like impossible for me to imagine that I would have set down the camera on that carpet and suddenly you get to experience what that carpet actually feels like. You know what it is to sit on that carpet now, just like I did when I was a child. But I didn't purposefully do that. It's just that that's the world I know. And I would say that is why it's so important, June, 
that we get to see films made by people who know the place because you see a place differently if you know it. That doesn't mean that we can't have films of people searching and discovering. But as you know, we have a history of cinema where certain people have discovered and seen and searched in other people's worlds and projected onto those worlds things they believe to be there. And we know the damage this has done about how people are seen. So I am certainly an advocate for all kinds of filmmaking, but I really think we have to support people making films about things that they know deeply. So that's part of my choice in making this film was to do something about a person I know deeply and a place I know deeply. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us on the Doc Exchange today. It's really been a privilege and a pleasure to talk to you. June, I think we did it. I think we did some magic together. (laughs) I think we had a moment. I think we made a moment. We made a moment. We totally made a moment. Oh, you were such a joy to talk to. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Doc Exchange, a Real Stories podcast, is a Little Dot Studios production in partnership with the Grierson Trust. I'm your host, June Jennings. The Doc Exchange is produced by Nicole Davis and Annie Hughes. Our executive producer is Paul Wolf. Our music is by Dusty Dex and sourced through Epidemic Sound. We're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Nash Kasich. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want to watch even more great documentaries, join us at Real Stories on YouTube, Amazon, Facebook, and other platforms. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.